All right. Well, it is our joy to introduce to you someone who has been uh, a part of this congregation, has come out several times uh, to share the word with the single young adults over the years. And uh, we've, we've loved Simon and Sarah and the family. We've seen their kids grow up. And uh, we love these guys. Uh, Sarah's back at CCK in charge of the children. So uh, there's a split personality here, actually. <laughs> Sarah's not here, but Simon's here. And your young lad is here, and we'll let you introduce him. And So we, we welcome you. Simon comes on behalf of not only CCK, but KMI. KMI, Kingdom Ministries International, is a large fellowship of churches that we are a part of worldwide and um, our apostolic covering. And so we want to invite you to come and share the word with us and then we'll be praying over different ones uh, at, at the end here. Amen. So you have your, you're wired and I'm, I'm ready good. to roll, huh? That's what I'm Turn it on. Yeah, yeah, that's always good. Okay, bless you. Morning, Let's everybody. receive him. So great to see you all this morning. Yvonne leaned over to me uh, just a moment ago and said, don't forget this was the very first place you ever preached in the United States of America was at Christchurch Monroe. And I said to her, I said, well, depending on how I do today, this might be the last place I preach too. (laughs) If I get into too much trouble, you'll be sharing with me the left foot of fellowship. Ah, it's good to be here with my son George, and um, <clears throat> we are uh, we are walking through a process uh, with you guys. As you are aware, we have been through our own uh, season of, of change and uh, and situations. How do you put a spin on it? <laughs> change and situations. Yeah, okay, that's great. <laughs> Let's just be real, right? This is real, but we're in this together and we are looking forward to to what God is going to do in the midst of everything. And this morning I want to share with you some some thoughts that I believe that the Holy Spirit not only uh, has for you, but I I believe wants to minister to you during this season and help you during this season and and provide a posture uh, for moving forward. Um, it's very important that at times like this that we don't allow ourselves in our flesh to get stuck. And whether that's stuck uh, as an individual or stuck corporately, uh, it is possible during times of upheaval to very easily get into a place where we get stuck. And so this morning, uh, the title of my message is Changing Times and Emerging Opportunities. Changing Times and Emerging Opportunities. Um, I was uh, preaching a couple of weeks ago at Kirkland, and um, it was right after Easter, and I appreciated the song that we sang this morning uh, that obviously alluded to the Easter story. I think it was the second song that we sang, and uh, I I had no idea what they were going to be uh, singing this morning, but I had a thought about the whole story with regards to the resurrection uh, not long ago. And it kind of, it, it kind of was a, a, a thought that, that kind of shook our preconceived ideas as to what the resurrection 
uh, is about and what actually took place at the resurrection. You know, I, um, for many of you that know me, I teach history. I've been teaching history at Christchurch Academy. I teach history at Northwest University. And, uh, and I love watching historical films and things of that nature. And for me, to teach history, most people find that, you know, listening to history is rather boring. You kind of fall asleep. So the way you teach history is you have to convey the story with a sense of why this story is epic, right? right? And, you know, the story has to have, uh, you know, a, a real sense that there are, there are dynamic um, uh, flavors, there are dynamic um, messages that come through a story that convey a sense of freedom and liberty and a fight against evil and all that kind of stuff that makes a story epic and come to life. Okay. And so that's how I tend to try and teach history in order to, to um, bring everybody along and make them feel like what I'm about to share with regards to this aspect of history is worth listening to. And so I had the opportunity to teach about the resurrection. I thought, well, easy. I mean, you know, you don't get much more of an epic story than that. That is the most epic story in all of history. And how many of you have been to or have seen, you know, one of those great big, you know, pageants around Easter, you know, at a big church or something, you know, where you go to the church and they've got the full, you know, um, cast and the music and the set and, you know, and, and the costumes and everything else. And they depict the whole story of leading up to the resurrection and, and everything's looking worse and worse and worse and worse. And then we suddenly are led to the moment on that Sunday morning. Guys, have, how many of you experienced this situation? I've seen it or seen something on YouTube or whatever, okay? Most of us have seen something like that, okay? And we get to Sunday morning and everything's quiet. And there's this tremendous sense of anticipation. What is going to happen? We've just been through a, a tremendous dark season. Everything seems to have, have gone wrong. The, 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 the king of the Jews who we associated with um, has been murdered, Everything is dark. Um, one of our lead disciples is in, is, 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 is in denial, has denied Christ three times. And the Romans seem to have the upper hand on, on everything. And, um, uh, and in fact, there's a sense that not only are they going to come, uh, have they already gone after Jesus, they could come after us as well. And we arrive at Sunday morning and everything's still. And we see the set. And you see the tomb in the center, Right? And all of a sudden, the music starts to build. And behind the set, the lights come up from behind. And, and the stage is still dark, but you can see in the, in the cracks around the, in the tomb that there's some kind of powerful light that is, that is starting to emit from behind the tomb. And then all of a sudden, you know, cue the fog machines. The fog machines start to roll, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the fog starts to kind of creep across the stage and the music crescendos. And then all of a sudden, boom! And the, the rock just kind of falls on the stage. And there's Jesus kind of standing there and the music is all triumphant. And the whole congregation just kind of erupts into, woohoo! Yeah, Jesus! Right? <laughs> it puts yourself into Jesus's he didn't have shoes on, but, you know, put, it, put yourself into his robes for a moment, okay? <laughs> Take yourself away from the, you know, from the first Presbyterian Baptist church or whatever you want to call it and their, their little, you know, uh, pageant that they do. 
or we do or whoever it is that does that kind of stuff. Let's take ourselves back to that moment for a moment, for a second. Okay. Jesus is dead. He comes to life. He gets up off the whatever he's lying on, the, the, you know, some kind of a, a rock thing or what have you. And he gets up. And there is no fog machine. There are no special LED lights, you know. He pushes on the tombstone and it falls away. And he sticks his head out. And there's nobody there. There's nobody there. I mean, obviously the guards, you know, when they saw the the thing roll away, they ran. There's no one there. The disciples are not there to greet him and go, Woohoo! This is awesome! This is the most epic moment in history and nobody is present. And as I, I thought about that for a moment, I realized that our expectations as to the most important things can be at this kind of level. But the reality is what actually took place that was the most transformative act in all of history was super simple. And where were the disciples? They were not there to greet him. They were not there to throw him a welcome home party. They were not there to put on a barbecue in the garden. You know, They had scattered. They were hiding in homes in fear. They had left Jerusalem out of despair. Peter in denial and despondence. Many of them feeling like, what was this all for? What did we give ourselves to? All those fishing trips that we kind of gave up. (laughs) Are you kidding me? What What was this all about? And I think that where we find ourselves at this point in time is, is that we, we live in the reality of a post-resurrection life. But the reality is, is that our experiences and our feelings are very similar to the disciples. Because we don't see the power of the resurrection life on an everyday basis. We don't have the epic music playing all the time. We live in reality. And the reality is, is that we sometimes are led through times of difficulty, times of transition, times of, of trauma. And how each one of us processes those things is different from one another. You have a Peter that's in denial. You have a Mary that's in distress. You have a, a Thomas that is in doubt. Each one of us processes the different things that we go through in a different way. And we need to have understanding for one another as we move through this process together. As we've been processing through our changes and the difficulties that we've been through in Kirkland, there has been a tremendous sense that different ones of us are in different places. And the same is true for you as well. Some feel the despair of of seemingly lost 
the presence of the Lord. Some feel that failure of having arrived in a place of denial like Peter did. Some people feel like Thomas in a place of unbelief that we really can't change. It's impossible for us to change because the issues that we're dealing with are so into our DNA, we cannot change. And then there are others that feel that, that in, the, in the process of making change, that we actually might lose our sense of identity. We might lose our history. We might lose the, the very core things that we feel are a part of and have been a part of us for so long. Some feel the sense of loss, asking the question, really, was this all worth it? And it's in that place that as the disciples emerge from this post-resurrection time. That there was no grand celebration. There was no massive reunion. There was no kind of super big rollout of the new disciples in the post-resurrection era. There was none of that. But instead, the way the resurrection was manifested was by Jesus coming to them individually And revealing himself to them. He shows up on the road to Emmaus. With two disciples that are heading on out of Jerusalem. Let's get out out of here and let's go to some remote place that we don't know where we're going. But we're out of here. We're out of Jerusalem. He shows up on the road to Emmaus. He shows up at the house where people have gathered to to figure out how to deal with life and lick their wounds. And and you've got Thomas that's coming in. I don't know about this. And what about Jesus and all the rest of it? And Jesus shows up and reveals himself to them. You've got the fishermen in the boat who are just out on the water again, slogging it out. I was like, well, what do we do? I guess we better just get out there and we put their nets down and nothing is happening. There's no fish to be caught. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) And Jesus shows up and makes them breakfast. Enjoys a meal with those on the road to Emmaus. Shows up at the home and has Thomas touch his wounds. In a very personal way. It's not epic. It's not with a fanfare. It's not with a super new marketing program rollout equipped with LED lights and fog machines and everything else. It's just simple intimacy with his people. What Jesus was doing with his disciples in the post-resurrection period was restoring their souls. They were hurt. They were broken. They were misguided, they were in denial, they were in unbelief, they lacked purpose, they lacked vision, and Jesus comes to them and restores their soul. And this morning I want to touch on on Jesus' capacity to restore our souls during times of turbulence. I think it's interesting that one of the key passages with regards to restoring the soul comes from David in Psalm 23. And when he says, he restores my soul, that it's given in the context of a death. Psalm 94 verse 19 says, When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. 
Psalm 107 verse 9 says that he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. That's where we are at right now. We're in a place of longing. We're in a place of hunger. We're saying, God, there has to be more. He comforts our soul during such times. It's during the context of moving into a place of captivity having been extracted from the land of promise, that Jeremiah says, for I will, uh, speaking on God's behalf, says, I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. That's in the context of captivity. And so, as we look at Jesus in this resurrection new post-resurrection era that we find ourselves in. It's interesting that this is the focus of Jesus' last work, was to restore the souls of the disciples. And it's interesting because if you go back to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, what did he announce when he first showed up to the synagogue and announced who he was? Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he says, God has sent me to heal the brokenhearted." To preach deliverance to the captives. To recover the sight of the blind. And listen to this. To set at liberty them that are bruised. All three Christ Church congregations in the last six months have received a bruising in many different ways. And God says that in the midst of that bruising, he comes to set us at liberty. He comes to heal the brokenhearted. And in fact, there are, there are consequences for not allowing God to heal our brokenheartedness. There are consequences for him for, for when, when we refuse to allow that healing process to take place. A bruised soul is a soul that has been distorted. Just in the same way that if you bruise your arm, or you bruise your leg. Your arm or your leg is, is kind of distorted. It's got that kind of nasty, big, huge blue mark or what have you. And as a result, if you bruise yourself badly enough, you actually lose a measure of purposefulness to it. I can't stretch it in the same way. I can't put as much weight on it in the same way. And so there's a sense that I'm restricted in the usual activities that I'm used to being able to accomplish. There's a sense of restricted hurt, a, a, a sense of restricted growth that has taken place as a result of bruising. Sometimes when we are hurt, we then lash out and hurt others. There's a sense of shame. There's anger. There's disappointment. There's a sense of rejection, depression, fear. These are signs of a bruised soul. A bruised soul expresses anger rather than passion. A bruised soul emits hatred rather than love. These are all feelings and, and components of, of, of our soulish expressions. A bruised soul feels apathy rather than zeal. A bruised soul senses fear rather than trust. And as a result, a bruised soul abdicates living for existing. Oftentimes, when we are in such moments of change, 
our souls trade the authentic expressions of life for cheap imitations that please the flesh rather than truly satisfy the soul. The soul is not some wicked part of us that we need to kind of tame and get under control. It's something that God has has given to us so that we can feel and express the fullness of what God has put inside of us. It's just that it needs to be under the government of the Holy Spirit. And it's so easy to, to allow our soul to pursue cheap imitations rather than real expressions. Instead, we pursue wealth, success and pleasure. None of those things are wrong in and of themselves. But if those things are being expressed because the soul is empty and is not being filled up and is not being healed, then it's just emptiness. The soul, in fact, can even choose spiritual imitations in the form of religious expressions and behaviors, believing that somehow that we should deny passion and in denying passion, we will somehow be more holy. That's a spiritual imitation, religiosity. Religion obligates us to restrain passion for it is believed that somehow in restraining passion, it will make us a better person. The reality is, it makes us a bitter person. A bruised soul refuses to be comforted. It's got its guard up. Psalm 77 verse 2 says, My soul refuses to be comforted. We have to be very careful when we're in times of strain and pressure, when we're in times where things are not going in the way that we expect them to go, that we allow our souls to come to that place where we refuse to be comforted. It's in these times that I think we need to be reminded of of what Jesus says to us in, in Matthew chapter 11. Where Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. This season that we are in is a time of rest for our souls. We need to learn how to to find that place of rest. It will take discipline to find that rest because our mind will be constantly bombarded with, well, what about this? And how about that? And how about that thing that somebody else said? And why is this happening? And why is somebody making this decision? In, in, In a sense, in the natural, it is the most unlikely time of rest. But the reality is, is that as Jesus comes to our road of Emmaus, As Jesus comes to our household full of doubting Thomases. As Jesus comes to our lake that seemingly has no fish in it. That it is a time of rest. That he shows up on the road and joins us in the journey. That he shows up at the house and asks us to touch him. That he shows up at the lake and cooks us breakfast. A soul at rest is a restored soul. A soul at rest 
loves without limits. A soul at rest forgives without conditions. A soul at rest enjoys without guilt. I'm not talking about walking in sin. Just talking about enjoying the things that God gives us in life. A soul at rest gives without demands. And so we are at a time in a season right now where, where we are to walk in that, that rest that God has for our souls. The question is, is how do we get there? When we have all these realities around us, how do we get to that place of rest? I want to share with you just briefly five points that I believe leads us to a restored soul. First of all, we need to discover why you feel what you feel. I love the honesty of the Psalms. Psalm 42 verse 5 says, Why are you cast down, O soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? We need to be in that place where we're asking ourselves and evaluating honestly and go, why do I feel so bummed out? Why do I feel so discouraged? Why do I feel so depressed? It's okay. That is natural. And we need to ask those questions. Don't get into some kind of religious imitation. Oh, I'm totally fine. Not affected by this thing at all. It's like no big deal. Are you kidding me? You know, we give ourselves to, to work hard in the kingdom of God. For me, it's been the last 18 years and the very work that we've been working to build up is now thrown out. I'm not okay with that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Not okay with that. Now, what needed to happen needed to happen. Don't get me wrong. Okay. But there's disappointment that's natural. And we have to fuss with the Lord and, and be honest with him. But don't stay there. The second half of that verse says, Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Put your hope in God. That in the process of fussing with you, you know what? I'm not going to allow the cares of this world to be put on me. I'm going to put my hope on God in the midst of this. Secondly, and by the way, in a sense, especially these first two, these are controversial when seen by themselves. But put all these five points together as a package and they will make a lot more sense. Okay. The second one is acknowledge with honesty how you feel. Goes on from the previous one. Job 7, we all know how Job you know, put up with so much more difficulty than I hope any one of us will ever experience in any of our lives with all of the trouble that he went through, you know, with his family and people abandoning him and, and losing all of his livestock and everything else. I mean, he lost absolutely everything that makes the things that we lose look pretty small in comparison. But Job makes this really interesting remark in chapter 7, verse 11, that should in one sense make us kind of cringe and go, whoa, uh, I'm not sure that I want to go there, but this is, this is real. This is where he was at. Here's what he says. I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain 
in the bitterness of my soul. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. You're giving me license to complain? Yes. In the spirit. With honesty and honor. I need to sit down with you, brother, and I need to share with you the troubles that I'm having. What I'm wrestling through and why this, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not mad at you, but I've got to work this thing through. I've got to be honest where I'm at. I've got to be honest with where we're going. This concerns me and that concerns me. Can we just have a conversation? I'm not asking for an argument and I'm not asking to be right. I'm just asking you to hear how I feel. And in fact, I'm not even asking that we necessarily change. And I just need you to know this is how I feel about something. That there can be honesty with honor. In the midst of times of despair, Job says that I will not restrain my mouth. Now, we need to be cautious. We need to be careful. We don't run away, run away like a freight train. And we just spout things off and say unnecessary and hurtful things. That's not what I'm saying. But the other extreme of that is to, oh yeah, we'll just be quiet. We're not going to rock the boat. We're not going to unsettle anything. And the reality is, is that deep in your heart, there are things that are unsettled and you haven't allowed them to be expressed. It's important that we express how we feel, but we do it with a sense of honor and we do it without demands. Like I said earlier, a soul at rest forgives without conditions. A soul at rest gives without demands. So there's a fine balance as to how we do this. And that's why I then lead us to the third one, which I think is really, really important. It helps put the other two in perspective. And the third one is, is that we need to receive the power to reject negative feelings and thoughts. We've identified what they are. We've expressed them. So we're not denying that they exist. But we are coming to the place that now we have the power to reject the negative feelings and thoughts that we have. Colossians chapter 3. Read the whole passage between verses 1 through 13 when you get the opportunity. But I've just highlighted a few verses in between there. And so I'm just going to kind of bring them together and summarize them by saying this. If you have been raised with Christ, talk about the resurrection. Seek things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. And put on then, as God's chosen ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and bearing with one another. Now, here's how we do that. See, I think in our religiosity, our tendency is to say, oh, I don't have any anger. I I don't have any issues. I I don't have any, anything that I'm wanting to slander about. No, 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 no. Because that's not Christ-like. Well, get over yourself. Yeah, we all have stuff that ticks us off, right? 
We all have stuff that gets our goat, that gets under our skin for whatever reason. And it's right that we identify those things, acknowledge it, and where appropriate that we, we share it. But here's the context in which that is done. It's done within the context that now I'm coming to, to take those things off. The power of the resurrection in me allows me to put those things aside now and to choose to walk with that kindness and that humility and that meekness with one another. That's the context of how we move together. That's the context for a people that are unstuck. A people who are stuck are those that recognize that they've got stuff that's going on in their soul that is causing them to be kind of upset and and uh, despondent and in unbelief and all the rest of it but fail to allow God to do anything about it the fourth point is that we strengthen the soul with the substance of his word a couple of scriptures here Deuteronomy chapter 11 verse 18 you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul Allow this to be a season where you allow his message, his story, his words to go deep into you to produce a new culture of hope in you as an individual and a culture of hope in you as a community. Proverbs chapter 2 verse 10 says, For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. There's a lot of things as we go through seasons like this that a lot of things that are not pleasant. We hear the reports. We hear the hearsay. We, we read the financial statements or whatever it is. It's like, oh, gosh, there's got to be something better than this. There's the report of the Lord. Whose report are you going to believe? We allow his word to give us wisdom as we seek to find a, a path forward and allow him to show us what our future actually looks like. We don't come with a sense of preconceived ideas and expectations, just like we come into the First Presbyterian Baptist Church on Sunday morning and think that our preconceived, that's what Easter looked like. No, it wasn't what Easter looked like. But we allow his word to, to lead us through the fog of war and the fog of change and everything else that's happening. The last one, strengthen the soul of others by providing encouragement and empathy. As you have been comforted in Christ, so also you can comfort others. This is a time for us to strengthen the soul of others by providing encouragement and empathy. Empathy, different from sympathy, is the ability to put yourself in the shoes of another. Do you guys have the capacity at this point in time to put yourself in the shoes of Pastor Dustin? And to think through, you know, if I was in his position, you know, this is, I'd be wanting a break. Do you have the sense of being able to put yourself in the shoes of Pastor Michael? realizing how we're at and where we're postured and the difficult reality we're at. As pastors, we have to do the same. I need to put myself daily into the shoes of my people, the Christchurch, Kirkland. Where are they at? How are they going to be able to be led? 
How do they want to be led? What's going to be right for them? Do we have the ability to have that sense of, of empathy? Empathy is different from sympathy. Sympathy is, is kind of in a condescending way, patting people on the back and saying, oh, I'm so sorry about your loss, so sorry about your trouble, and leaving them there and not helping them out. Empathy is the ability to, to seek to understand where others are coming from and helping them to perhaps see what will help get them unstuck in the process. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 24 says, The gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Right now, our souls could use a little sweetness. And the proverb says that the gracious words are sweetness to the soul. That in the midst of us sharing honestly, and that's what we need to be doing, there needs to be a graciousness that comes. There needs to be a graciousness that is experienced. Christchurch Monroe is in a season of change. And change is the only prerequisite for opportunity. Can't have opportunities without change. You can't expect to experience different results by doing the same thing over and over and over again. In order for there to be change, healthy change, we need to embrace opportunities. Well, I don't want change. I'm happy with with the way it was before. (laughs) What if the disciples had said that to Jesus? After the resurrection. Yeah, it was great before. So what you're saying is you don't want the resurrection? We have to go through processes of change. And processes of change are difficult, but they are what cause us to grow. They are what cause us to, to allow us to trust in him in a, in a new and a different way. Ecclesiastes 3.1 comes to the conclusion For everything, there is a season. How many of you have ever been in a season where summer lasts forever? I love spring. And if spring went on forever and ever, it would be pretty. But I'd never get to go on vacation. Seasons come and seasons must go in order for us to experience the change of the dynamic and the growth that needs to transpire in our lives individually and corporately. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel explains in his prayer that God changes the times and the seasons and he removes kings and sets up kings. Change most often comes when there is a shift in leadership that takes place. And we have experienced a shift in leadership in every way in our congregations over the last number of months. And ultimately, our posture is is that just as Daniel's message was one about coming to that place of finding peace in the sovereignty of God. 
We read and interpret change usually from where our soul happens to be at, how we feel about a change, how we process that change in our minds. And a soul that is injured places certain demands and expectations on God and on others and especially on our leaders for the outcome to be directed in a certain way in order to minimize pain. That's not always a healthy thing. And so that's why we need to deal with where our souls are at so that we are not responding to the change out of a place of injury but we're responding to change out of a place of healing. Healing is not to deny that there ever was an injury. It means that the injury is being dealt with. We've acknowledged it. We notice it. But we're dealing with it. And we're now not allowing that, or, or as the healing process occurs, I'm not allowing that injury to impede me to the degree that it used to. And so now, yeah, my leg may be bruised and I can still feel that when I'm trying to hike up to Wallace Falls, but I'm, I'm taking maybe a little extra time to do it, but hey, it's not going to stop me. I exercise it. I, strength, I, I stretch it. I begin to work it out. And as a result, the, the injury begins to move away and become part of our history. A bruised soul says... How can we trust a God of promises when we're surrounded by men who can promise us nothing? But a restored soul, a restored soul is at rest because it doesn't carry demands as to what the fulfillment of God's promises will look like. And nor does it expect man to fulfill these expectations in a certain and specific way. So when we're in a time of transition, our hands need to be held open. We need to be willing to allow the Lord to show us what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. And no matter what happens, the beauty of life in Christ together is that we can experience relationship and we can experience community no matter where we end up going. that there's a uniting and a joining in our hearts, that even if God was to, to put different people in different places, just as God moved me from England, I still have strong relationships with my brothers and sisters in Christ back home, with my parents and so on. So for some, there's going to be a moving on. For others, there's going to be a coming closer together from a geographical perspective. But our hearts can remain at one and our souls can remain at rest no matter what God's sovereignty allows in terms of change. A post-resurrected Christchurch Monroe may not necessarily be welcomed with fanfare and throngs and new buildings and new marketing plans and everything else, but it will be authenticated by Jesus coming to us personally on the road to despondent disciples in a home to doubting believers, on a boat with tired fishermen, Jesus comes during this season to refresh the weary. Our posture during this season is to expect forgiveness, expect unity, expect relationship, 
expect love because these are the kinds of changes that the opportunity presents itself for us to experience. Other than that, we don't know. And so we hold everything lightly. What will our future meetings look like? What will the building look like? What will the children's ministry look like? What will home groups look like? What will our leadership look like? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. But I can guarantee that our future will look like forgiveness, love, unity, relationship, intimacy with him. Those are the things that we can guarantee on. And as a result, we can find rest for our soul. I want to end by, uh, I have some cards here to, to pass out. Maybe, George, you could do that side. Pastor Michael. Here's a quote for you to maybe put on your refrigerator um, or stick in your Bible or something like that as a, as a word of encouragement. And here's what it says. The only way to shoot an arrow is to pull it backward. So when you're feeling pulled backward, focus forward on God and get ready because he is aiming you toward good. God has good things for us. We're not sure what the target is, but we know it's a good target. But in order to be released into the fullness of what God has for us as a destiny, individually or corporately, we must be pulled back before we are released. Sometimes when we're being pulled back, it feels like, God, what are you doing? I'm being taken further away from my destiny. Here's the tip of the arrow, which is what we see. There's the target, and we're being pulled back. It's like, God, your logic doesn't... I don't understand your logic, God. I'm moving away from my destiny. When Joseph was in prison, he was about the farthest in his mind from God, from his destiny. The reality was he was the closest he ever was to it. When we're being pulled back in the bow, that means we're actually closer to our destiny than we realize. When we're on the road to Emmaus, we're actually closer to the destiny than we realize. When we're in a home doubting, we're actually closer potentially to the destiny of God than we realize. When we're out fishing and we're not catching anything and wondering what in the world's going on, we could actually be closer to the destiny of God than we realize. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Michael. Yeah. The Lord, you're here. I think it would be good for for uh, for us to have Pastor Simon to just pray first over this congregation for the thing that he shared. And uh, if you if you need prayer, maybe if, I should say if you don't need prayer, <laughs> raise your hand. If you need prayer, raise your hand, and we're going to ask Simon to just lead us in prayer for for each of us. Yeah. Well, Father, we 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 present ourselves before you, Lord. We're just ordinary people. Yes. 
We feel like sometimes we need to escape Jerusalem. We feel like we need to go hide in our home. We feel like we just need to go and find a quiet spot somewhere. And Lord, we we sense, Lord, what are you doing? We don't say that with any accusation. We just say it because we're human. We're wondering. But in the midst of that, Lord, put something in our heart that says, yeah, we're wondering. God, what are you doing? This is an opportunity. And so, Lord, I just pray this morning that for for each one of us, that you would just begin to fill our hearts with a new hope, a different hope. Not a hope that is defined by man's expectation of success. But a hope that maybe we can't even describe. A, A hope for peace. A hope for healing. A hope for a deeper sense of community. Lord, we thank you that because you are good, you do all things well. And we trust you in that, Lord. Allow the the post-resurrection power to reside in our soul. And, And where we are injured, we ask, Lord, that you would... Just touch. Walk with us. Fish with us. Work with us. Eat with us. Sit with us. Thank you, Jesus. We bless your name, Lord. We praise you for what you're doing. In this time, in this season, we trust that that you, in your wisdom and in your sovereignty and in your providence, will do all things well and all things good. And so we release our present into your hands and believe you for whatever our future looks like. We thank you and we are so grateful for our past. And all that you have done in our past will continue to reap a bountiful harvest of relationships and love and fruitfulness. We thank you, Lord, that that our past will even equip us for our future. And so in this present moment, Lord, we yield to you as to however you decide, Lord, to bring about our futures. We say, you know best. You know better than we do. And that ultimately your end is is far better than anything we could imagine. Thank you, Jesus.